The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. All right. Just two books left in Jesus' Bible. After this week, we have three more weeks of class, and it's Christmas. And we will have done an entire survey of the Old Testament. Just to remind you that all the class times, at least most of them, unless my audio broke, most of the class times are all uploaded now to the internet, and all the PowerPoints are there. All my own course notes that I give my students are available to you at deroshi-meyer.org, and I encourage you to go there and follow up. I got in late last night. I spent the week uh, in San Diego. It was a little rough. Um, I <laughs> the Lord was very kind. I kept calling, and my kids were telling me that they were enjoying their sledding every day. Um, the Lord used it. I, I was at a conference. I was presenting, and and He was faithful to meet meet me. Um, he was kind to let me catch my plane, and I'm here today, uh, feeling myself that I need to hear the words from Ezra Nehemiah. So pray with me one more time, and then let's open up this book. Precious God, I thank you that you are not done working. Thank you that Christ is on the throne, and yet... Right now, the reality is, it doesn't appear that everything has been subjected to him, but it has. We pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you be shown holy on earth as you are in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. This I ask this day. Be a strength and an upholding hand. And may your word speak through the ages into our souls. May Christ be made much of. May he become more our treasure and our hope. Thank you that he is unswerving and ever faithful. Amen. I thought it good at this point. We've been um, back into the narrative books, Daniel, Esther, and I wanted to just take time up front here to fit us into the story. So the monarchy of Israel began with Saul, then David, then Solomon. Everything went south with Solomon. He had a problem, he was a sinner. And we're going to see the same sins of Solomon reproduced in the people today, which is a big flag. The text is actually going to recall the sins of Solomon, that he gave himself to women who did not follow God. And those women became a snare to him, and it put the monarchy in jeopardy. The kingdom was ripped apart 
We end up with the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah, 20 kings in the north, 10 different dynasties, 20 kings in the south, a single dynasty, because God was being faithful to preserve his remnant. He had said that a king would rise. An offspring of the woman, an offspring of Abraham, who would be the instrument through which all curse, all sin, all tears would be put away. That the earth could be restored back into right order, that the kingdom would indeed come. And because of that, he preserved the line of David. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 723, and then the southern kingdom was destroyed in 586 by Babylon. In 605, 20 years before, Daniel had already been taken to Babylon. Then in 597, Ezekiel was taken to Babylon, later to become a prophet. And that Daniel gave signs and reminders of hope. Right at the time when he was expecting the 70 years that Jeremiah had promised to be complete, he went to prayer. Said, God, 70 years, and God says, yes, 70 years has come. But there will still be 70 weeks of years, 70 sabbaticals, 490 more years until restoration is complete. That is reconciliation with God. Stage one, return to the land. Stage two, get right with God. And this book, after seeing the unbelievable portrait of kingdom hope in Daniel, after seeing God's providential preservation of his people in Esther, this book is here to tell us full restoration has not come. Therefore, our eyes have to move ahead and look toward the sun. What these books do is really, in the midst of darkness, point to the moon. Just as I prayed, they're in the midst of darkness, feeling separated from God, and God is said, saying, look up. Look at the stars that are reminders of the one star that would rise. Look at the moon that is still shining, testifying that the sun is still shining. It's a reflector. In the hope for the day when the light would finally dawn and that bright and morning star would make all the other stars grow strangely dim in light of its glory and grace. This is a book distinctively placed in order to tell us, keep hoping for the light of the world. Because it's going to go out of its way to declare, it hasn't shined yet. The people who have returned to the land have not seen their hearts transformed. And so it's a little bit of a harder book. But with it, there is this remnant voice through Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the governor, these two that are being raised up to testify the way kingdom hope will be preserved. So in 586, Babylon destroyed Judah. And so we enter into this window between 586 and 516 when, so 516, I don't know if this works, doesn't work. 516, uh, the temple is rebuilt, 70 years between that window, um, but Cyrus is going to make a decree right here in 538. In 539, he came to power, and he makes a decree 
Just as there had been three exiles, the exile where Daniel was taken, the exile where Ezekiel was taken, the exile that destroyed Jerusalem, so too there's three restorations. There's the restoration of Haggai and Zechariah, those are the prophets, and Zerubbabel is the governor and Joshua is the priest. That's the first six chapters of the book designed to catch us up on history, a history lesson. And then we enter into Ezra's memoirs, the period of Ezra. He's in the second return from exile. And then we get Nehemiah's memoirs, his journal entries. He, we actually, I mean, it's, he's just writing down what happened. And sometimes he just breaks and he writes down his prayers to God. And it's all in first person. So all that's happening in this stage, the people of God are being reunited in the hope of full restoration. So in the final two pages of the handout I gave you, I just printed off a table from uh, what the Old Testament authors really cared about, that book, and this is a synthesis of where we've been since the narrative portion of the Old Testament started up again at the end of Jesus' Bible. You have, coming up on 550, Daniel is a leader in the court. He's a court official in Babylon, and then his leadership continues into the times of the Persians. So I have the prophets, the events that are happening up north in Judah or, sorry, uh, west in Judah, and then the events that are happening in the east in Babylon. So, the first return of the exiles, which is where this book begins, but notice that Esther's story already happened. We, we heard about it last week. But what the book does, then, is Ezra and Nehemiah, this is their, their journal entries, but what the book does is the first six chapters go back in time before the Esther story to tell us what was happening in Jerusalem, and they catch us up for six chapters of history from the end of the days of Daniel all the way up through the actual return. All this is the, story, the book Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of what's happening in Jerusalem. Daniel and Esther were stories of what was happening in Babylon. And so this book comes in at the, end, at the end of the canon, just before Chronicles in Jesus' Bible. And it starts out by filling us in with what happened. What happened was they, the first return. They get to go back to the land, and then uh, the new temple is completed. A temple that is nowhere near what they had hoped it would be. And then we finally get to chapter 7, and now the, the actual um, story of Ezra picks up. And it's his journal or diary entries, all in first person. And then when we get to Nehemiah chapter 1, everything switches and we move further in history to the third return. Nehemiah goes back to the land uh, to rebuild the city walls. And Ezra is still the high priest at this time. And we see Ezra show up also in the book of Nehemiah. So three returns. This is just big overview stuff, and then we were gonna, we'll get into the book. Three returns. 
Ezra 1 through 6, Ezra 7 through 10, Nehemiah 1 through 13. 538, 80 years later, 458, so Ezra is 80 years after the original return. And in that 80 years, hearts have not changed. That's what we're going to see. And then Nehemiah. Artaxerxes, the first, is the heir to the throne after Xerxes. And Xerxes was the king, or Ahasuerus, as he's translated, rendered in the ESV. He was the king during the days of Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah come in the reign just after Esther has been queen. Just trying to put the story together for you. So you've got Zerubbabel and Joshua in the book of Zechariah and Haggai. And Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets. And then you've got Ezra, who's the priest, Nehemiah the governor. And even though Malachi, the book of Malachi, doesn't mention either Ezra or Nehemiah in it, the problems that Malachi is dealing with are exactly the same problems that we see evidenced in uh, the, book of books, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So there's decrees that happen. You can rebuild the temple. You can worship at the temple, uh, restore the city, rebuild the temple city wall and gates. What's amazing is that of all the people that were exiled, taken captive, only about 50,000 return in the first return. That's why we have an Esther story. Because most of them did not return. In fact, there were Jews all the way from India to Ethiopia, we're told. They had spread out across the entire diaspora, all across all the land in the exile, and many of them did not want to return because everything had gone so well for them in exile. And yet the prophecy required that the king be born in Bethlehem and there needs to be a people in the land. The kingdom has to grow. So under the days of Ezra, not even 2,000 went back with him. This is a very small group who are, who are there. So the temple is restored, sacrifices are instituted, lots of external and internal obstacles to God-centeredness. Enemies from without, sin within. The exile, Jeremiah had promised 70 years. And where we start that clock and where we end the clock is a little tricky. But as we're going to see in this book, there's a sense in which, because full restoration hasn't come, they still have a mentality that the exile is happening. They're going to call themselves slaves in their own land because they don't have a king. The Persia, Persia is their king. And so, in a very real sense, they feel separated from God. His presence hasn't returned to the second temple. At least that's the sense we get from the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. God is predicting in, the, in these, already in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, he's saying, I will return to my temple, suggesting that his presence hasn't come. And all, so, so what happens is, there's a sense in which exile continues. They're exile, at least, they're not fully reconciled to God. And that continues up until the days of Jesus. And he then comes as Israel, as the temple. 
He comes bearing the curse, which is the ultimate exile. He bears the ultimate exile from God in his own life. Father, why have you forsaken me? He bears the curse of Israel, and with that, the curse of the world in his own being. And the exile ultimately, officially comes to an end. He's the climax of the covenant that inaugurates then the birth of the new creation and the new age of the new covenant. Follow up or... Correct. Probably only, only two. When we read the story of Mordecai in Esther, we learned that his father, now that could be a grandfather, but it was his father, Kish, who had actually undergone, he was alive in 586. So um, Mordecai is way down here in the Esther story in 486, and it at least says he was the son of, of Kish, who experienced in 586 the exile a hundred years before. So Mordecai is probably a, an older man, but his father was around a hundred years earlier as a, as a boy. Maybe it's his grandfather. We don't know. But, yeah, only... So, so when Haggai and Zechariah... When, uh, Haggai and Zechariah build the second temple. It makes it explicit in Haggai chapter 2 that there were people in 516 who 70 years earlier had seen the original temple of Solomon and they weep because it's no, it, there's no comparison of the glory. The glory of Solomon's temple compared to what they were able to do is nothing. Memory. That's right. That's right. Jeremiah had, when he predicted the seventy years, he told them, "Don't expect you'll get back soon. Settle, build houses, plant gardens," and they established themselves. And what we read in Ezra and Nehemiah is that most who returned didn't, had even forgotten Hebrew. At least that's how I understand when it says they had to teach, they had to give understanding of the law, suggesting that they're reading it in Hebrew and no one understands it, so they have to translate it on the fly. And um, I'm sorry, they're reading it in Hebrew. Everyone there is the first, they're, they're like immigrants coming in who don't know the language of Hebrew, they only know their native tongue, Aramaic, and it needs to be clarified for them. Praise God for translations. So that the Word of God can be ours. But that's what it was like for those people, that small group of returnees in the days of Ezra. So you've got the 50,000 here, and then you've got this group pushing 2,000. They return, and, and the majority of them Oh, only the leaders, the scribal leaders, had preserved their knowledge of the language of the Word of God. So, basic 
basic outline of the book. Rebuilding a broken temple in the hope of more. Reviving a faithless people in the hope of full transformation. Rebuilding a broken city in hope of more. And then again, reviving a faithless people in hope. Catching up on history, Ezra's memoirs, Nehemiah's memoirs, parts one and two. Here's my summary of the theme. The need to rebuild the broken temple and city points to the need to revive the faithless people, all in the hope of full kingdom restoration. What's at stake is this. God may have taken the people out of Babylon, but Babylon had not yet been taken out of the people. And that's what needed to happen. And this book is here to testify to us that more had to come. And it gives us clarity as to what it looks like when you're living without full restoration and struggling with sin. What kind of steps do you need to take to fight sin and become who you're supposed to be? Ezra 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So you have Cyrus, the king, I think in a a form of propaganda, affirming for the people, Yahweh has called me to let you go. I say propaganda because we have outside the Bible, found what's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And in the Cyrus Cylinder, he describes, Cyrus describes, how Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians, whom he has adopted as his god, commissioned him to uh, do something new with the exiles. In the Cyrus Cylinder, he declares that all the peoples that Babylon had exiled would be allowed to go back to their lands and with them all of their gods. That is, they could take their idols that had been uh, stashed up in Babylonian, Babylonian closets. We'll give you back your idol or all the implements of your ritual worship and we'll let you go back. Notice he says in the verse that Yahweh is the God who is in Jerusalem. This is a territorial view of gods. That that Yahweh has authority over certain districts, not over all the world. And already in the book of Daniel, we saw Nebuchadnezzar growing in his awareness that Yahweh was the supreme one overall, but that's not where he started. And... That's, that's what's at stake. It's, it's possible that Jonah, trying to run out of... I mean, could he outrun Yahweh? He may have had a territorial understanding of God. We see it in the book of Kings, where they'll say, 
the, the Arameans enter into the land and they say, Yahweh is God of the mountains, that's why he won, but he's not God of the valleys, so let's fight in the valley next time. And then they get wiped out and they find out that Yahweh is God of both the mountains and the valleys. Or Naaman the leper, when he gets healed by Elisha, he's the commander of the Aramean army, the Syrian army, and what does he want to do? He wants to take a wheelbarrow of turf back with him. Because he thinks that Yahweh... He doesn't have a correct worldview of how big this God of Israel is. So he wants to take land with him back to Syria so that he can properly worship the God who saved him. So what we have is Cyrus here in, in these beginning verses testifying to something we see also outside the Bible, but he's wording it in a way that outside the Bible, in his own newspapers the Cyrus Cylinder, that everybody could read. He etched it on stone so that all the world would know how nice of a guy he was. I'm letting you return to your lands, and I want your gods, he says in the Cyrus Cylinder, to remember Marduk, who's over all, who has granted them favor and to return to their lands. We don't read that here. Instead, what we read is Yahweh is the Supreme One who has commissioned me to let you go, but he still doesn't have a, a massive view of Yahweh because he's the God who's in Jerusalem. The God of heaven, that's right. The what what I at least what I can say um, is that in his own hometown newspaper he declares Marduk the supreme god over all, and all the other gods submitted to him. So I think he's ear tickling here. And yet, when we read it, within the context of the whole story, we know he's actually testifying to truth. That this God is not limited. The God of heaven is a comparable phrase to what we heard in the lips of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. So he allows them to return. And we're at a high point. This is a high point. This is hope. Jeremiah's made prophecies and everything is going to be good. But this, what this does at this point, what we see is a roller coaster that I think we're supposed to feel and it's supposed to leave us longing for more. A roller coaster throughout this book of high points and deep low points. Just when you think all is going to go well, it's not going to go well. Why? Because it's at a high point. You can return to the land. Restoration is coming. And then we turn the page and we read in verse six, uh, chapter 2, verse 64, the whole assembly, assembly together that decided to return was only 42,360. That's it. Low numbers. High point, they can go back. And with that, all the hopes of future kingdom. To have a king in Jerusalem, who from there, who, his kingdom would rise up and all the enemies would be put down. That all eyes throughout all the world would be looking toward Jerusalem to the king who would give his law, who would bring, who would bring peace, whose reign would never end. And, and the fact that they're not going back suggests they have separated themselves from kingdom hope and they've been settled into the kingdoms of the world. They're not longing 
They're not eager. They're not surrendered to God. They're not putting their trust in the promises of God. It's not the promises of God that are driving their action day in and day out. Good question. So, the I don't have a good answer for that. Um, that that would be significant. I know where I would go. I just don't know what the numbers are. So where I would go is uh, I know I can tell you in two weeks because then I'll be in Chronicles. But I would go to the beginning of Chronicles. It actually lists. Um, the numbers that there were that went through the exile, those that were not killed. It lists lists them out there at the beginning of Chronicles. And then I would also go backwards to David's census lists. So at least during the days of David, we've got a sense for how how many people there were. And then, um, although the census list lists the same number for each tribe, which says this is quite general, but it at least probably gives us a big big picture. If we go all the way back into the book of Numbers, those that were entering in the land were around 610,000 males. 610,000, and but, but many, many years have gone by, and Israel's continued to multiply. Um, so... Next time I teach this, I'll try to have that answer. Because that, that's good. Brother David? And the dispersion that continued uh, is, is even up to today, correct? I mean, there are Jews in Iraq, for instance. Correct. And there are Jews in uh, India. There, there are ethnic Jews all throughout the world. Yeah. And much of that stems from this original eradication out of, out of Jerusalem. And they've settled and they've stayed. Um, the, when you read the book of Romans, what you see, though, is Paul's giving clarity that to have ethnic Jewish blood doesn't make you a biblical Jew. That in undergoing the curse... You have forfeited your status unless you return to God, ultimately hoping in His King. And it's only that group that is then identified from a a scriptural perspective as, um, as the true Jew. Those who are identified with Jesus, who is the ultimate Jew. And yet, Paul is very quick to still distinguish he still maintains, even though he can call uh, rebel Jews um, not Jews in one sense, in another sense, I believe he still holds out true hope for ethnic Israelites who are still hostile to God, that he holds out hope for a uh, more substantive inclusion of those who have ethnic Jewish blood that stems all the way back to Abraham. Um, that along with Gentile inclusion, there's going to be a substantive Jewish inclusion into the people of God. That is, they will 
identify themselves with the true Jew and therefore regain their heritage. They're like rebel children who have separated themselves who will then come back and be restored. Cyrus? Cyrus, what, what you have... Right. The, so Babylon's perspective and Assyria's perspective was we're going to wipe out all the hostility and yet um, those that we're able to enslave who are strong or who are smart, we will take with us to exile and they will serve as slaves in the context of our kingdom. The poorest of the poor and the uneducated we will leave to rot in poverty and famine in the land. So they take their, their approach to exile is to take everyone out of the land. But what happens is Babylon's power wanes. It gets, it's, it's a mile wide and an inch thick. And because of that, right after the uh, writing on the wall dream that they were overextended. Belshazzar sees that finger on the wall and he writes out the three things, mene, tekel, whatever it is. And he writes it out. And what Daniel says is going to happen is that is testimony that your kingdom is going to fall and be given over to the Medes and, and the Persians. And the very next day he dies and Cyrus shows up knocks on the gate. This is the historical record outside the Bible. He knocks on the gates of Babylon, and they literally open it up without a battle and give him the keys. And with that, so Babylon had made their kingdom so thin that the, they, were, they were defenseless, And but, but now Persia comes to power, and they own this massive kingdom without any authority. They are, they, they are weak, and they, they know it. And so, so what he does in order to nurture a new program of alliances, he says, rather than keeping you here as slaves, I want your gods to be happy gods, because gods oversee everything. So I will let you return to your own lands and rebuild your own temples, but don't forget me and be sure to pay taxes. And so now he has... Now he has right, this is a new project, and it's rather than enslaving you and breaking you, I want to make you my friend so that you'll be on my side. Right. And, and so that's the sense we get outside the Bible, and it aligns with the testimony we see within. So last week when we did Esther, that was before this, right? The, let, me, let me go back to, this, to what we've got here. The Esther story falls here, okay? That's 486, and we've got to go in reverse from how we're usually thinking. So uh, numbers are climbing backwards before Jesus. So 486. Before that, you have the 538 decree. So somebody do the math there. 38 down to 46 is right around... So 52 years. 
52 years have passed since the original decree that they could return to the land. This group, in 538, the high priest Jeshua and the governor, uh, high priest of Israel, Judah, high priest Jeshua and governor Zerubbabel, who's in the line of David, bloodline of the royal family, they return and with them God raises up two prophets. All of that is actually happening before the Esther story. But what God is doing is he starts, so they find themselves in lamentations, bemoaning the destruction of Jerusalem. The exiles have uh, gone off to Babylon. The exiles have been carried away to Egypt. And so what Daniel does right after the book of Lamentations in Jesus' Bible, Daniel follows Lamentations, and Lamentations transitions us then back into the story of where we left off. Kings ended, the book of Kings was the end of the narrative, and there was that window, and I'm talking to someone who wasn't here during, this, during the, the story as I walked through, but Jesus' Bible is framed, that is the Old Testament, is framed by the story. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. That's all storybooks, narrative. And then the, the history, the narrative, breaks for two sections. The latter prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Twelve, tell us why Israel ended up in exile. That's where Kings, the story of Kings, ends in Babylonian exile. It, then the prophets tell us how they got there. Then we have Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Lamentations. These are, these are poetic books, poetry drafted by the remnant few who are hoping in the kingdom. And it gives us a lens into how those faithful few living in exile were trusting in their God. And then we get back into the story, but the story picks up where kings left off, that is in Babylon. And it catches us up with Daniel and Esther with what's going on in Babylon. But then we come to Ezra, and before we can hear of what's going on in Judah after Esther, because Ezra comes after Esther, before we can understand rightly what's going on in the days of Ezra and then in Nehemiah, they take the first six chapters of Ezra to catch us up on what's been going on in Judah. Cyrus is up here. So this is one of Cyrus's heirs, Artaxerxes or Ahasuerus. He's the, he's the Persian king in the line from Cyrus down, down to here. So Esther's story would have affected the decree that went out and the, the Jews are given freedom then to defend themselves on the day of, of Purim when Haman had declared the annihilation of the Jews, the, uh, the new decree from Ahasuerus um, is, and Ahasuerus is Xerxes I, I think he's either the father or the grandfather of Artaxerxes I, who we read about in the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. So I, I think he's the father, but I, I don't recall exactly. But this story, 
even though we don't read about it in Ezra 1 through 6, it's most likely that the Jews here that are living between this period of the temples rebuilding under Haggai and Zechariah in the days of Ezra, that they could have been annihilated on that day. That the Samaritans that we read about, the same Samaritans that are in Jesus' day, the Samaritans are merely um, a mixed race when Assyria in 723, when Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom, they took all the wealthiest and the smartest that they didn't kill with them to Assyria, but they left the poorest of the poor, and they replaced all the Israelite nobility with Assyrian nobility. And the Assyrians and the, the poor Jews ended up intermarrying. And that's why the Samaritans are viewed as a mixed race. They're Jewish and Assyrian. And the pure Jews didn't want anything to do with them. And that's the same group that in the days of Nehemiah, when he returns over here, all, all during this blank spot, the Samaritans are growing, populating. That is this intermixture of Assyrian and Jewish race. And they're settled pretty well. They have the favor of the Persian king. And now the Jews return and they're building their temple and they're building their um, city walls. And the Samaritans are hostile to them. And we read all about that in Ezra 1 through 6. We doing okay? That's, I, 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 don't, I want clarity, not confusion. Um, Let me just do a, without focusing deeply yet on on the message itself, I want you to feel, just by walking through the story, I'm going to walk through these, this pair of books, which is one book in Jesus' Bible, and just let you see how there's high points and low points, so that when you get to the end and it leaves us on a low point, it sets us up for longing for more. And I'm, I'm just looking at the time. I'm just going to walk through this, maybe read a couple verses, and get us, just walk us through the storyline of these two books. Cyrus makes his decree in Ezra 1. And right away we learn very few return. That's a low point. Now they come back. They lay the foundation of the temple. But then we come to chapter 3 in Ezra. And what we read is verse 11, chapter 3, Ezra verse 11. They sang, He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The temple's foundation has been built. This is a time of celebration. But... Verse 12, many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Is this all? Is this all? Our God is so great and this is so small. Is, we're hoping for a great kingdom that will fill the entire earth. What are we doing? And so then it says, they are crying... The others are shouting for joy, those who hadn't seen the first one, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. 
That's this book. It's a, it's a mixture of where are we at? What, what are we doing? What, what's going on? Is this right? Is this fulfillment? Opposition comes from outside and they stop the building of the temple. This is not a good thing. But then they're able to finish the temple and there's rejoicing. Then we come to the book of Ez, to, to the memoirs of Ezra, and he's given commission to return and now establish as the high priest. Ezra sets his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach both statute and rule in Israel. Study, practice, teach. We'll unpack how does one find hope for the kingdom? Next week. And so much of it revolves around that. The hand of the Lord was upon Ezra because he set his heart to study the Torah of Yahweh, to practice it, and to teach both statute and rule in Israel. That's where Reformation begins. A A reconstitution. That's where hope comes. A reorientation to the Word. It might seem dark. It might seem like God is distant. And you get back in the book and you just hold fast to His words of command and His words of promise and you don't let them go. Fasting and prayer for safety. Ezra says we've got to get back and... We're going to go from Babylon in the second return and return to the land. So let's pray. Let's pause. Let's not eat and just say, God, we're all in. We're all yours. Let's not tell the king that we need help because we've already told him that our God is big and we don't want him to think that our God is small. So let's let's pray and fast. This is a high point. And as soon as they get back, what they find out is that like Solomon, the people have intermarried with foreigners. Something so, I, I just I think it's so clear. The Bible celebrates interrace marriage. It detests interfaith marriage because it can destroy. It becomes a snare. And one of the ethical dilemmas of this book, and you've probably faced it if you've read it in your devotions, is they do a mass divorce and declare it's the will of God. How do we understand that? I'll try to unpack that a little more next week. So they cleanse. They cleanse the people. Our time is ticking here. Now Nehemiah comes on the scene. And he goes all the way back to Deuteronomy and he says, God, you were a God who shows love to those who love you. We are sinners. But right now I'm turning to you. And what he's counting on God to be faithful to his promise. I will love those who love me. God's conditional love. How do we understand that? God loves those who love Him. And Nehemiah prays, and what that love looks like, what he's counting on God to respond to, is his admitting that he's a sinner. That he needs help from God. And that's the condition that is meeting the loving of God. And he's counting on God to just pour His love and His favor toward him. A high point. And then he comes back and he finds out the people have not been doing anything on the city walls. And there's a a parable that's going on. Lack of protection and the brokenness and lack of protection of the city is a testimony to their willingness to let the world in and not keep it out. There's this, the, the message that permeates this book, one of the key elements is just guard yourself from the world. 
Do what it takes to overcome obstacles to to God-centeredness. Brokenness of soul happens when we don't fill ourselves with God's word of command and fill ourselves with God's word of promise. But all of a sudden, if we can ground ourselves on the foundation of God's word, as big as the storm comes, as dark as the night gets, we find ourselves upheld on a rock, not because of who we are, but because of where we're standing. Because of what has surrounded us in the protective hand of God. Jeremiah and Nehemiah confronts opposition from the outside, these Samaritans. Then he confronts opposition from within. The Jews themselves are oppressing the poor in hard ways. Then there's a high point, the completion and protection of the wall. They're able to rebuild the wall and and the book's looking up. And then they find out that the priests who are supposed to be serving in the temple don't have proof that they're really priests. Low point. Then it's the reinstitution of the sabbatical year. The, the very thing that they hadn't kept for all those years. Remember in Leviticus, we saw in the book of Daniel, for every year that you failed to keep the, the sabbatical year, six years of work, and then the seventh year letting the land rest, and on that year having a, a very intense Um, focus on renewal, hearing the Word of God. Seventy times they had failed to do that. That's 490 years that Israel had failed to keep the sabbatical calendar. So they had 70 years of exile. But now they reinstitute the sabbatical calendar and they gather together and they hear the words of Ezra. He just reads through the book of Deuteronomy and all of a sudden they're quickened and they recognize we're not where we're supposed to be. That's a high point. They dedicate the wall that's just been built. And so all that's happening in the physical sphere is a picture of what's supposed to be happening in the spiritual sphere. They're rebuilding the walls and protecting themselves from worldly influence. They're reshaping the walls of their heart. And so we think all is well. We get up to the end of chapter 12. They dedicate the physical wall. And then chapter 13 of Nehemiah is just... Like five different areas where sin is still prevalent. The presence of foreigners in their midst. A priest who's living in one of the rooms of the temple, as if it's not holy and set apart only for God. Failure to provide for the priests. They're having to go out and work the land because people are not bringing in their tithes. Profaning the Sabbath. They're... Letting foreigners in and they're buying and selling and being influenced by the world on the Sabbath day. Interfaith marriage continues. So they're they're intentionally going out and marrying those who are snaring their souls and pulling them away from Yahweh. And then the desecration of the priesthood. So that you come to the very end of the book of Nehemiah and the very last thing he says is, Remember me, O God. For good. This is not where it's supposed to be. Remember, O God. Remember me. For good. And that's the only hope of the book. The hope of the book is not bound up in people. People are fragile. People are broken. People are prone to wander. The hope of the book is, God, you've got to remember me because we forget you too often. Remember me, O God. 
I'm trying. I'm trying to honor you. Remember me, O God. So next week, what we will do, Lord willing, is get into this book a little bit more. Wrestle with the message and how... uh, how it's calling the hearts, what it, what, and what it means for us in an already but not yet life of the kingdom. Um, they're longing for more, and most of them are still rebel, not remnant. They haven't seen their hearts changed. Babylon is too deeply in their soul, and they're living like it. And so the call is, get Babylon out, and the question is, how do we do it? And this book helps give clarity, and it sets us up for the very last book of the Old Testament, Chronicles, which is one of the books least understood because we just read it after the book of Kings and we don't think it's any different, so we just bust through it. And it's, it's filled with such amazing hope. I mean, it just sets us up in an amazing way then for the Messiah to come when we turn the page to Matthew 1. Let me pray. Sorry, not next week. No class next week. The following week, we'll come back for three weeks then, I believe, and it'll take us right up to Christmas. And Chronicles just leads us right to Christmas. It's glorious. And that's where we'll end our, end our survey. Father, we've looked at a lot of facts here today, God. I, I was hoping for more than that, but I pray that you have stirred in hearts. Thank you that you are the controller. You are the controller who brought about the exile, Daniel 1.1. You're the one who gave Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and you are the God who moved Cyrus to initiate stage one of the restoration that, you, that we are now enjoying the full-blown realities of, at least in an initial sense. Jesus has come. Our hope is in him. Remember us, O God, for good. We need you to remember us. See the brokenness of our souls. See our own waywardness. Ground us in your promises and your words of command. Be near us, O God, for good, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.